I invite you to take your copy of God's Word today and uh, open it again to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2. Our focal text today will be verses 18 through 22, Mark 2, 18 through 22. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles that's under a seat in front of you, you can find Mark chapter 2 on page 786. The large uh, numbers in the Bible are the chapters, the small superscripted numbers are the verses, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. A couple of years ago, my wife bought for us a new Christmas tree. We don't do real Christmas trees in our house because they're messy. We do artificial trees, and artificial trees come in boxes. And when you buy an artificial Christmas tree and you open it up and you set it up, you fluff out all the branches and it's beautiful, and then Christmas is over and you have to put all the decorations away, at least before Valentine's Day, because we're humans, we're not savages. And when it comes time to put the Christmas tree away back into the box that we got it out of, find, doesn't fit back in the stupid box. (laughs) Happens with kids' Legos. I swear they came out of the box. They won't fit back in the box. Not only does it not seem to fit, but it's just just the, the whole purpose for the box now seems absolutely ruined entirely. Why give me a box that you can't put the tree back into? Trying to fit a Christmas tree back into the artificial Christmas tree back in the box it came into is one kind of silly and frustrating. It would be all the more silly and all the more frustrating to try to do something even more ridiculous, like taking seeds out of a packet of seeds and planting them and watching them grow and then taking whatever plant it grew into and trying to shove those back into the envelope of seeds that it came out of to start with. And not only will it not work, but it just defeats the purpose entirely. Seeds are meant to grow and expand and turn into plants, not to be shoved back into a bag as seeds as they were before. Today we come to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, uh, into a text that, I'll just be honest, has often befuddled me. But in it, Jesus has now the third in a series of confrontations with the Pharisees. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, tells three short parables in order to teach the Pharisees and to demonstrate that He is bringing with Himself a kingdom that cannot be confined to old patterns and forms of religiosity. That the kingdom that Jesus brings is like that Christmas tree that you can't shove back into the box. It doesn't fit anymore. Like a plant that grew from seeds, you can't shove back into the envelope of of seeds again. That when the kingdom comes, it, it explodes out of all previous forms to contain it. The main idea of this passage today, as I prayerfully trust I have understood it well, is this. That Christ's kingdom is incompatible with man-made religious traditions. Christ's kingdom is incompatible with man-made religious traditions. As we come to see this idea communicated to us from Jesus and come to understand it, I hope that we would come to find joy in knowing Christ and that we would also seek to, as followers of Jesus, root out every form of man-made religiosity as we seek to follow Him in truth. So I invite you stand, please, as you're comfortably able, as we honor God by the reading of His Word, Mark 2, 18 to 22. You'll recall the previous passage. Jesus was eating in the house with Levi, and He told 
those who are questioning his audacity to eat there, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we read in verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. May God add blessing to the reading and study of His Word. You may be seated. Christ's kingdom is incompatible with man-made religious traditions. As we come to this text, we're, first of all, confronted with a question that causes conflict. A question that causes conflict. The question is essentially this, from those followers of the Pharisees and others that were observing what they were doing, a question to Jesus asking effectively, why don't you follow the religious pattern of the Pharisees? Now, just in the episode prior to this, we saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. It was a problem for the Pharisees because they treated tax collectors as unclean people, undeserving of fellowship. And to that end, Jesus replied, the healthy are not in need of a physician, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, the Son of God, has come to bring healing to the spiritually sick who know that they need it. And we saw in that same episode that the Pharisees, who were blinded by their own self-righteousness, failed to see their own need for spiritual healing. Here now, in the next episode, our, our text today, a similar situation arises. The Pharisees and some of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer's disciples, are all fasting. But Jesus and his disciples are not. Something that this, uh, this event in, in verses 18 through 22 happened at the same time as the episode before, that this is all brought on by the fact that Jesus is eating, is feasting at Levi's house on a day when the Pharisees were fasting. By the time of Jesus... Jewish piety and devoutness of religious practice was demonstrated in three different ways, three different practices, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. In the practice of these, some Jews thought themselves to be demonstrating right religion. This is how you know that someone is serious about being a Jew in Jesus' day. They pray, they give alms, and they fast. This is not to say that these are inherently bad practices. It's good and right to pray to God, the Father, who is over all and who exists in sovereign control of all, who knows our needs and who delights to answer our prayer according to His riches and glory. It's good to pray. It's good and it's right to give generously to those who are in real need. Giving alms, giving to those who are poor, demonstrates a recognition that all that we have is ultimately from God's provision and that in some ways God uses us as agents of His provision to those who are most vulnerable. It's not wrong to give to the needy. It's not wrong to deny yourself food for a time, to fast, as you seek to draw near to God and prayerful dependence upon Him. But each of these can be perverted if used in order to draw attention to yourself rather than turning your attention to God in a relationship of trust and faith and dependence upon Him. Prayer, almsgiving, fasting, not bad things, 
but very bad if practiced wrongly. There are in the Old Testament a number of different fasts that are observed among the life of God's people, the Israelites, the Jews. But there's only one fast that was actually commanded in all of God's law, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That one fast was a one-day fast on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in, in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. It was the day on which the high priest uh, uh, of the Jews would offer a sacrifice to God for the sins of the whole people of Israel. The people's fasting on that day was meant to remind the people to mourn their sin that had separated them from God in His perfect righteousness and to return to Him in repentant faith and trust. That's why they fasted that one day. Now the Pharisees, who were experts in the law of God and more than a little proud of themselves as we have seen, by Jesus' day they had begun to follow a different pattern for fasting. Not one day a year, but two days a week. And they viewed this semi-weekly fasting as a means of demonstrating in a visible way for other people to see that they were pious, devout, serious Jews who were right with God. They had even convinced, it seems, some of John the Baptist's disciples. And it's interesting because John the Baptist was not a good friend with Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers, called them to repent. And yet, it's some of his followers that are doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. The whole pattern of fasting seemed to grow so popular, at least so well known in Jesus' day, that when Jesus and his disciples don't follow the proper pattern of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, that they're viewed as somehow out of step with Jewish religion. Why don't you do what the Pharisees are doing, Jesus? The problem with the Pharisees' practice of fasting twice a week is that it's nowhere commanded by God. That's problem number one. Theirs was a self-imposed structure. They took it upon themselves to do this fasting, and they took it upon themselves to say to everyone else, this is how you know if someone's serious about their faith, that they fast like we do. They took the law of God, and they sought to add to it, drawing an ever-shrinking circle around those who were really pious and separating those who didn't take religion seriously enough. The problem with the people's question to Jesus, why don't you fast like the Pharisees do, is that they aren't asking Why are you violating the law of God, Jesus? But rather that they're asking, why don't you follow the religious expectations of the Pharisees? Why don't you do what we've always done? Now, Jesus has already found himself on the end of strange looks and accusations by the Pharisees at least twice. He'll find himself on the bad side of the Pharisees a number of more times throughout his life and ministry. When he pronounced a paralytic man's sins forgiven in a crowded home in Capernaum, the question was, Who do you think you are claiming to do what only God can do? When he ate with Levi and his friends, the question was, how do you dare be near to people like this? And now the question is, why don't you do things the way that we've always done them? But that's the telling point, isn't it? That the fasting that the Pharisees are engaged in is not the way they'd always done it. And it wasn't the way that God had commanded Their pattern went beyond and to the extreme of what God had commanded. And they took this practice, this personal discipline, and and applied it and imposed it upon others as a test of faithfulness. Here's a warning for us, just in the first question that's asked of Jesus. Why don't you do what the Pharisees do? The warning for us is this, that no one is immune to the error of equating man-made traditions and preferences with orthodoxy with right praise, with right worship, with right knowledge and understanding of who God is. Not a one of us is immune from substituting our preferences for what makes a true Christian. The Pharisees were not, I don't believe, 
intending to be malicious, hateful men. Their movement grew out of a desire to reform the Jewish faith after the return from exile in Babylon, to know God's law and to observe what had been forgotten. But in their growing expertise and their knowledge of God's law, they had become so focused on keeping the law, of checking all the boxes in the law and all the boxes that they added to the law, that they missed what the law was there for in the first place. The law of God does not exist to tell us how we can earn and keep God's favor by doing the right thing. That's not what the law does. The law was given to reveal God's holy and righteous character and to reveal His people's need for forgiveness of the sins that separated them from such a righteous God. The law does not say to us, prove your righteousness by performing sacrifices. Rather, the law says, God declares you righteous by your faith in Him. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him for righteousness. And the law tells us that God has made a way for our sin to be paid for by a sacrificial substitute. But yet the Pharisees had come to misunderstand the law so as to make it say something quite different. Prove your holiness to a holy God and to others by keeping the law. Fast twice a day, every day. Twice a day, every day? You can't do twice a day, every day. Twice a day, every week. No, twice a week, every week. They might have liked it twice a day, every day too. The spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well in all of us today. Not a one of us is immune from taking personal preferences and religious traditions and making them into tests of orthodoxy. Christian, what traditions do you hold on to that are nowhere found in God's word that you treat as tests of genuine Christianity or as a demonstration of real faith? Is it singing out of a hymnal only? Is that what makes a real Christian? Is it never singing out of a hymnal at all? Is that what makes a real Christian? Is it being a part of a church that has a Sunday school program that's called Sunday school and nothing else? Or is it being a part of a church that only has home groups? Because Sunday school is old-fashioned and stuffy, don't you know? Is wearing a coat and tie to church, is that what makes a real Christian serious about his faith? Is having a vacation Bible school every summer. Is that what makes a church a real church? Now listen, I'm not saying any of these things are bad or wrong. In fact, we do many of them here at First West, but the question is whether we treat these as the non-negotiable content of the gospel and right worship. Be careful, Christian, that you not fall into the trap of the Pharisees requiring of men what God has not. Be careful. What the Pharisees required of themselves and what they required of others, this twice-a-week fasting, was not part of the law. It was their attempt to prove to others just how seriously they took their religious traditions. One day of fasting a year might be good enough for you lowly people, but we serious Jews fast 104 times a year. There's a question that brings about a conflict. And so to this question about his and his disciples' seriousness about their faith, Jesus gives two revealing responses. Why don't you do what the Pharisees do, Jesus? Jesus doesn't say, I'll tell you why. He tells three parables. First one about a wedding, love Jesus. First one about a wedding, and the second two twin parables about things that don't fit together. First of all, Jesus says, to their question, why don't you fast like we do? 
His first response is this, weddings are for rejoicing. Weddings are for rejoicing. Now in the ancient world, in many non-Western cultures even today, weddings are a huge deal. Weddings are a huge deal in, in the West today, but it's usually like a one-day thing. But in many places of the world, even today, and certainly in Jesus' day, weddings were week-long things. Most of the time, the bride and the groom had been engaged for some time already, usually having been arranged, their marriage being arranged by their respective parents. So when the day of the wedding came, there's much rejoicing and much joy in not having to wait any longer. I mean, it could have been years and years that this man and this woman were, were intended to be married together. But furthermore, in those days, most people made their living working in fields, doing other physical labor. So when a wedding came along, the celebration would often give the family and the friends and many in the community a whole week of celebration and rest from their labor. Weddings were good times in the life of small communities. Now, the highlight of the whole wedding, today in the, in the West, in our wedding today, the highlight of the wedding is when the, the doors at the back of the sanctuary or whatever open and the bride walks in. But in that day, the highlight of the whole wedding was when the bridegroom appeared, when the husband showed up, when the future uh, groom made his arrival to the celebration. Weddings are for rejoicing, Jesus says not for fasting in mourning and sadness. Jesus said fasting is for days of sadness. Weddings are for celebration. Today, the bridegroom is here. It's not the time for fasting. The time to fast in mourning over sin is gone. It's not appropriate because Christ, the bridegroom, is here. He's the bridegroom he's talking about. This wedding imagery is not new when Jesus uses it. God himself spoke in chapters 61 and 62 of the prophet Isaiah that he would be one who would come like a bridegroom in the day of his kingdom to rejoice over his people, his bride. John the Baptist applied the same language to Jesus in John's gospel, chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. When he said to, the, uh, um, when, when he said to those who were talking and following and questioning him, he said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, John the Baptist says. The friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. My purpose has been fulfilled. The bridegroom's here, and I've pointed people to him. He must increase, John 3.30, but I must decrease. Jesus is saying in the short parable about not fasting when the bridegroom is there, dear Pharisees, my disciples do not fast because the kingdom and salvation that Israel has long awaited for is here in me. He then gives a veiled reference to his eventual death. A time will come for mourning when the bridegroom is taken away, taken away by force. And the disciples will mourn for at least two days until his body is raised from the dead. But then, all through the rest of the New Testament, the life of the Christian is not one of gloom. It's a life of joy and the salvation that they know in Christ. It's a life of freedom from the sin uh, that they have. Freedom in Christ from sins that he died to bring forgiveness of. It is a life of transformation, a life of abundant purpose that is theirs in Christ, the bridegroom. And they're glad that he's there. Jesus, by his appearing and in his kingdom, transforms lives from mourning in sin to rejoicing in salvation. It's not time for fasting anymore. 
He transformed the practice of fasting in in sorrow over sin into the celebration of redemption. Christians are to be people of joy because we have known the substance of the hopeful promise of Isaiah 25, 9, which says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. When salvation is present in the person of Jesus, the time for fasting is over. That's why we feast, Pharisees, Jesus says. But then Jesus gives another reason that his people don't fast like the Pharisees do. Weddings are for celebration, yeah. And the second reason is gives in the form of two twin parables. The second reason is this, that false forms can't contain what is true. First reason we don't fast is because weddings are for celebrating. The second reason is because false forms, and if I could add in parentheses there, false forms of man-made religiosity can't contain what is true. Jesus makes this point by telling two parables that have the same meaning. Let's just read them one more time. Verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. That's why we don't fast. Easy enough. Let's close our Bibles and go home. I'll tell you, these two parables have frustrated the tar out of me for a number of years because for me, they are difficult to understand. So if these are difficult to understand for you too, welcome to the party. If you know all the answers to these two parables, wonderful. Let's go party. (laughs) Jesus makes this point. False forms can't contain what is true by telling these two parables. Let Let me see if I can help us to understand this. These two parables have essentially the same meaning. In the first, the one about the new patch on an old garment. He says that no one sews a piece of new unshrunk cloth as a patch over a hole in an old garment. Because when you wash that garment, the patch will shrink and it'll tear the old garment even worse than it was before. And in the second parable, he uses the analogy of new, not yet fermented wine being placed into old wineskins. Wineskins were normally goat skins, tried to, uh, uh, attempted to be pulled off the animal as whole as possible, tie up the leg openings and pour wine into it where it would ferment. And as wine ferments, it releases gases, and the gases cause the skin to expand. And a, a fresh goat skin has a lot of elasticity in it yet, and so the wine has plenty of room to stretch and to grow. But if you take an old wine skin that's been stretched out and dried out and used over and again, and you put new wine into it, when that wine goes to ferment, well, you've got a mess on your hands. The point of these parables is this, that the kingdom of God, which is represented by the new cloth and the new wine, cannot be contained in and is not compatible with old man-made patterns of religious practice and social expectation. The kingdom of God doesn't fit with the Pharisees' self-imposed regulation of fasting twice a week. The forms of worship practiced by the Pharisees and John's disciples here are attached to the Old Covenant, though they don't spring directly from the Old Covenant. They don't spring directly from the law. They're additions to it. But Jesus brings with Him a new covenant. By His death and resurrection, He ratifies the new covenant of justification by faith and the promise of the indwelling Spirit that God gave to His people to expect be all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Moreover, Jesus comes to make a people for himself from among all nations, not just ethnic or geopolitical Israel. The old covenant and the old covenant people in Christ are giving way to a new covenant and a new covenant people that are both meant to include ethnic Israel who will believe in him, yes, and not to exclude them. But the kingdom that Jesus brings cannot be confined to one people and to a law that was designed for obsolescence in the day of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The law's obsolescence, the law's being old, the law's going away does not mean that it's irrelevant or that it's been overturned by Jesus. Not at all. Jesus said, I, didn't, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In Christ, the law of God finds its fullest meaning and accomplishment to reveal God's righteousness and man's sinfulness and need for an essentially righteous redeemer. In being born a man, Christ brings the law to its natural conclusion in living a sinless life while upholding everything that the law revealed about God and man. Paul, the apostle, calls the law a tutor, a guardian. It watches over God's people until the fullness of salvation comes. And then it gives way to a new thing. The law, which could never save on its own, but only guard against sin, gladly welcomes Christ, who is the superior Redeemer. So to be in Christ, but to live by the law and not by faith in Christ, is to force new wine into old wineskins. The term Christian legalism should be an oxymoron. Salvation is by God's grace, not by the law, through faith in Christ. Now, we're saved by God's, by, by God's grace through faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we... Well, well, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by good works, and not just to do good works. We don't do good works to earn God's salvation, and we don't do good works to keep God's salvation. Christian legalism is an oxymoron. But so is Christian antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti-law. The antinomians of, well, they're still around today, would say that because Christ has died for sin, I'm now free to live however I want. Not true. Christ fulfilled the law. God's holy expectations for living don't apply to me anymore. Not true. Paul says to those who would live this sort of way in Romans chapter 6 that Christ has not died to redeem us from a life of sin to a life of sin. Instead, He's redeemed us from a life of sin to a life of sanctification, Amen. where God by His Spirit is working out holiness in our lives and what we do, not to keep the salvation that He's given to us, but in joy and, and, and in fulfilling the purpose for which we have been made. Amen. The law still truly reveals that God is righteous and man is sinful. Friends, don't tear your Old Testaments out of your Bibles. The law is still good. Not for, not for making us saved, not for bringing us salvation, but the law is still good for revealing that God is holy and we are sinners in need of redemption. And that reality is graphically displayed at the cross where we see Jesus paying the price of our sin. The wages of sin is death. We see God's justice against sin in Christ on the cross as He died in our place but we also see the mercy and the grace of God present in Christ at the cross where Jesus died in our place. So a new covenant people being born again 
as Jesus says in John 3, cannot be reborn in spirit in order to sin and cannot be reborn in spirit in order to keep a law that Christ has already fulfilled, but rather to be sanctified and to live holy lives before God in all joy and obedience to Him. Christ's kingdom is incompatible with man-made religious traditions. Pharisees, those days of legalism are going away. They can't save you. They never could save you. Jesus is saying the new covenant is just around the corner, so we're feasting because salvation is here. Friends, if in our attempt to point people to Christ, we require of them more than Christ has commanded, we will lose the gospel. Let me say that again. If in our attempt to point people to Christ, we require of them more than Christ has commanded, we will lose the gospel. We will fall into the trap of Christian legalism. But likewise, if in our attempt to make disciples of Jesus, we also try to keep everything the way that we like it and never change anything, we'll find ourselves joyless wedding guests in the presence of the bridegroom. We have God's word to guide our joyful and true worship. The new wine of the new covenant does not mean you get to go do whatever you want. God has still spoken. His character has not changed. So let us not seek to do the foolish thing of adding all of our preferences and personal traditions to what God has already clearly commanded. Now, praise God, there's a lot of freedom in Christ to do different things in different contexts, all to the glory of God and for the edification of His people. The way that we do church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in Taylor Ranch, is a little bit different than the way that believers do church in Senegal. But if we're all doing it under the submission of God's Word and Christ's kingdom, well, friends, there's lots of freedom in there to bring glory to God and make disciples of Jesus. Christ has ratified a new covenant of restored relationship with God through faith in Jesus, who died for sin and was raised again. When the, covenant, when the new covenant emerges out of the old, like the plant that grows out of the seed, it cannot be shoved back into the confines of the old. It is God's kingdom with Christ as king that we become citizens of as we submit to Jesus as Lord. We come to live as loving servants of a mighty king who has made us new. So let us not find ourselves trying to do the very silly thing of forcing Jesus to fit our cultural and religious expectations and comforts. But rather, let us find ourselves joyfully worshiping in spirit and in truth for the fact that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and this not of our own doing so that none of us may have any cause to boast in the works of our hands or the righteousness of our man-made traditions, but only to boast in Christ, the Son of God, who gave His life as a ransom for many. The kingdom of Christ cannot be contained by man-made religious traditions. The kingdom of Christ calls people to submit their lives to His kingdom. If I could say the whole thing a little bit differently, I would say the kingdom of Christ cannot be contained in man-made cities. But as the kingdom expands throughout the world, He is calling every city of man to be submitted to Him. Which means that sometimes when we come to Christ with our expectations, with our values, with our norms, sometimes those are affirmed by Jesus and, and made even better. 
Sometimes, and probably more often, when we bring all that we are, our culture, our values, our norms, when we bring them to Christ and submit them to his lordship, very often they get changed. Sometimes very radically. We're called not to be conformed to the image of this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, a work done by God through his Holy Spirit in us. We should expect that when we come to Jesus, things will change. In our life, a church that is submitted to Jesus should expect that things will change as we seek to reach our community more effectively for the gospel. The things that never change, the nature, the character, the person of God, the necessity of repenting of sin and trusting in Christ for salvation, the call to obedient, faithful living, following Christ and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, those things never change. But our songs sometimes change. New ones get written. Old ones get rediscovered. New musical instruments get invented. We use those to the glory of God. New Bible study curriculum come out that maybe we haven't used before but ought to think about doing. New evangelistic tools come about that that maybe help reach a a different generation a little bit better than the ones before. Friends, all of these things submitted to Christ and to His Lordship, transformed by Him, can and will be used for His glory. Let's not get stuck in stuffy, man-made forms of religiosity that are not the gospel and do not lead people to joy. But on the other side, let us not fall into the trap of saying, Jesus died to make us free, let's do whatever we want. Because that's not the case either. Let's follow Christ faithfully. Let's follow Him truly. Let's follow Him as new covenant citizens, having repented of sin and trusted in Him for salvation. Friend, if that's you this morning, and you, you need to come to Jesus for this kind of life, this life of freedom from sin, this life of, of renewed purpose of worshiping God and the way that you were designed to do, you can have that life today by placing your faith in Christ. I invite you. We'll sing a short song of response uh, after I've prayed here in a moment. Uh, and after we dismiss to Bible study groups, come and find me. Let's talk together about how you can know this Jesus, how you can have your life transformed by Him, how you can have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God and assurance of that thing. Let's meet today. Let's talk together. Let's see from God's Word the promise of salvation that is ours as we come to Christ. The true and better Adam, the true and better Moses, the true and better David, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Let's pray together.